It is good to be with you again tonight, and I'm glad that the Lord has blessed us with this opportunity to be able to worship, to encourage one another, and to uh, glorify our, our, uh, the name of our Father in heaven. It's a blessing, and it's one that we certainly should not take lightly. Ideas have consequences. At the beginning of his book, a book that is dedicated to exploring and identifying and pointing out the ramifications of the various major philosophers and philosophical ideas that have existed throughout history, the author tells a story of his own life that is true and very important, very revealing. When he was in college in the 1950s, of course, he was a philosophy major, and unlike all of his other friends, he had a very difficult time finding work in the summertime and throughout the school year. But finally, he was able to secure some work in the janitorial and maintenance department at a local hospital, and when his supervisor found out that he was a philosophy major, he smirked at him and laughed and gave him a broom and said, here, you can think while you're sweeping. So part of his sweeping duties were to sweep the outside portions of the hospital. And it just so happened that this hospital was right next door to a nursing home. And so each day as he would sweep, uh, his area outside the hospital, he would sweep right up until the uh, sidewalk of the hospital merged with the sidewalk of the nursing home, and then he would stop because that would be the end of his territory. One day, while he was doing his sweeping duties outside, however, he noticed that there was someone else who was sweeping on the other side, sweeping on the, the nursing home side of the property, and when the two of them got close together, they stopped for a moment and they exchanged names and pleasantries and so on. And somewhere in the conversation, this young man told this uh, new friend that he had found that he was studying philosophy in college and immediately the other man, who was an older fellow, lit up. And he started asking him all of these questions about Plato and Socrates and various philosophers and what his thoughts were about these things. And he was sort of baffled and puzzled by that. And he wondered, how is it that a person... Uh, how is it that, that you have, have come to such a knowledge of, of philosophy, that you're so interested and that you would ask these kinds of questions? And as it turned out, the reason why he was so interested is because he was from Germany. And he had a Ph.D. in philosophy, and he had been a, an instructor, a professor of philosophy at the university in Berlin. And when the Nazis came to power... He quickly found himself in their crosshairs because he refused to promote and believe in their ideology. So they removed him from his position and they arrested his wife and all of his children except for one and killed them. And he and one of his daughters was able to escape and come to America. And the lesson is this. Here on the one hand, we have a person who finds himself, finds himself using a broom at, uh, uh, to, uh, at, at a hospital because where he is, where he's from, people really don't think all that much about philosophy and about the ideas that people tend to have. But then on the other hand, here is a man 
who comes from a place where the regime of the Nazis very much understood the value of ideas. And they very much understood that the ideas that were opposed to theirs, if those ideas were allowed to spread, if those ideas were given legs, that those ideas would then produce consequences. And so they did everything within their power in order to rid themselves of them. Ideas have consequences. There was another person who had an idea. You'll know his name. His name was Karl Marx. And Marx had an idea that economics were the driving force of history. Marx believed that man's identity is defined by his occupation and that society ought to be on an upward trend toward the elimination of all social and economic class distinctions. He believed he believed that everything that would aid in that movement would be considered ethically or morally right, and he also therefore believed in change through revolution, even violent revolution. Marx is the one that made the statement that religion is the opiate of the masses, and the reason that he made that statement is because in his mind, religion was nothing more than a drug that kept people separated from reality. Ideas have consequences because his ideas have resulted in the slaughter of more than 100 million people in the 20th century, and that number continues to grow even to this very day. I want to direct your attention to something that our Lord said in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Because in these three passages, Jesus will deal with the principle that we're looking at this evening, and that principle is that ideas have consequences. I want you to notice in Mark chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, that Jesus is answering a charge, and the charge has to do with defilement. You may remember that the charge of the Pharisees was that the disciples of Jesus ate without washing their hands, and so they insisted that they were therefore defiled. Jesus said in verse 20, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart, of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. He says all of these things, they come from within and they defile a man. The principle that Jesus is dealing with in these three verses is the principles that ideas give rise to our belief system and our belief system gives rise to our action. We might think of it in these terms, the idea always precedes the product. We've gathered here this evening in this building, we have artificial light, we have air conditioning, we have padded pews, and we have carpet, and we have a sound system. But I want you to stop for a moment and think about the fact that there was a time in our country where these things that we have here that we consider to be modern conveniences, that we consider to be things that are just part of everyday living. There was a time in which they didn't exist. But at some point, someone had the idea to create a sound system. Someone had the idea to create the uh, uh, air conditioning. Someone had the idea of creating artificial light. And so the idea first, it comes first. It precedes the product. In the same way, Jesus says, when you have a person who commits adultery, that's because the thought or the intention of adultery existed in their heart first. The idea precedes the product. When you have a person who is, verse 21, a murderer, 
It didn't just happen by accident, but rather it's because murder has been forming within their heart. It's been forming within their mind. And eventually it will result then in the action. The idea precedes the product. Ideas have consequences. So whether we're dealing with some sort of an ethical dilemma, trying to understand the difference between right and wrong, or maybe we're talking about coping with sickness and death, or maybe how to organize and run the home, what we have to realize is that the belief system that a person possesses is the foundation upon which their actions are going to be based. And we refer to this commonly as a worldview. Now, you may never, have never heard the term worldview before. It may not be familiar to you at all, but I assure you that you have one, and everyone does. And when you stop for just a moment and you think about the implications of that fact, it starts to become a little bit frightening. Think for just a moment about the fact that everyone, regardless of whether or not they understand it or realize it, everyone has a worldview. Do you realize that every school board and every superintendent and every teacher in every classroom in every state of this country, every single one of them have a worldview? And the people who write the curriculums for schools, they have a worldview. Your doctor has a worldview, and that worldview will dictate in many ways how he's going to approach his care for you. The city council and the mayor and the governor and the Congress and the Senate and even the president of the United States, everyone has a worldview. Everyone in Hollywood, to the person asking for money on the side of the road, to the clerk at the grocery store, everybody has a worldview. And the important thing about this is that the worldview that a person possesses is going to determine how they live. It's going to determine how we think and how we process the things that happen in our world. It's going to determine what kind of decisions we're going to make and how we're going to conduct our lives. It's going to determine our value system, which then, of course, is going to determine our action. So what I would like for us to do this evening is I would like for us to approach this idea of a worldview biblically. Let's define the term. What exactly is a worldview in more specific detail? And why does it matter? And what does God's word have to say about it? Let's start by defining our term. In the simplest way possible, the, way, the, the easiest way of defining what we mean by a worldview is basically to say that it is a way of viewing reality. It is a way of viewing the world and our place within it. And the thing about how we view the world and our place within it is it's not just about what we think the world is, but it's about how we think the world should be. So our worldview is essentially a framework by which we will answer the most important questions of life. Like, why are we here? How did we get here? What is the meaning of life? How do we know the difference between right and wrong? Or does right and wrong even exist? What about God? Does God exist? Is man the product of evolution? And on and on the list goes. Let me suggest a couple of illustrations that might help to clarify the point. I want you to stop for just a moment and I want you to imagine a peach tree. You walk up to a peach tree in full bloom and immediately you begin to see all of its characteristics. You see its color, you see the leaves, you see the height, you see the fruit. You, you can even go up and you can pick the fruit. You can, uh, you can touch on the peaches and you can feel if they're ripe. But the thing that you don't see is actually the most important part of the tree. 
and that's the roots. You see, without the roots, the tree can't even stand up. Without the roots, the tree won't live. Without the roots, the tree will not produce fruit. Without the roots, the tree will essentially fall away and die. Well, think about the roots of a tree as a worldview. The worldview that a person holds are those thoughts and those convictions and those ideas that they hold within their heart and within their mind, and you may not be able to see them, you may not be able to perceive or pick pick up on them right away, but what you have to understand is that the worldview, the ideas, the convictions, the thoughts, the framework, that's what's responsible for producing everything else that the person says or does in the same way that the roots are, are responsible for producing everything that the tree is and does. Or maybe think of it this way. I want you to imagine that you see a car right in front of you and you first look at the car with your glasses and then you take off your glasses and you borrow somebody else's glasses and you look at the same car. Now the car doesn't change. The car looks exactly the same regardless of whose glasses you happen to be looking through. But the way that you see the car, that changes depending on which glasses you happen to be wearing. The car is the same, but the way that you see it is different. That is a worldview. It's all about how we see reality. It's all about what we perceive to be truth. It's all about the foundation with which we make our decisions and upon which our actions are based. Now, turning our attention to God's Word, let's talk about why this matters and understand that uh, the material that we're looking at tonight in, in, in very large, to a very large degree, is uh, summarized and shortened uh, from the amount of material that we could and maybe should cover. Why does it matter for us to talk about a worldview? Here's the reason why, because what we have to understand is that there are a number of competing worldviews that are on display in our world. Some of them we'll talk about later But uh, a person might have what we would call a secular humanistic worldview. Basically, they're atheists. And so they're going to make decisions about everything, life and death and the home and family and everything else based on that framework. Some are what we would call postmodernist. And the most uh, probably well-known aspect of a postmodernist worldview is that they deny the existence of absolute truth. So they're going to make decisions about things of life from that framework. There are a number of different competing worldviews, but listen to this. There is only one worldview that is actually true. There's only one worldview that is rational. And by rational, we're talking about the law of rationality, which basically says that a person should only reach those conclusions that are justified by adequate evidence. So the only real rational worldview that is based upon truth and reality is New Testament Christianity. And here are some reasons why. First of all, because New Testament Christianity recognizes the existence of God. New Testament Christianity recognizes the existence of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and completely and entirely just God who has created this universe and everything within it. And as the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 17 and verse number 28, which by the way, mark that down. Because keep in mind that in that chapter, in that context, the Apostle Paul is in Athens. He is speaking to a group of people who are philosophers, the Stoics, who are materialistic pantheists, and the Epicureans, who are essentially hedonists. And so in front of him, his audience 
is made up of a, diff- a number of different and competing world views. They all have different value systems. They all think and they all do things differently. And yet in the midst of all of that, in Acts 17 and verse 28, the apostle Paul appeals to the God of heaven and earth and he says, in him we live and move and we have our very being. New Testament Christianity is the only worldview that is rational and based upon truth and reality because first and foremost, it recognizes the truth of the existence of God. But second of all, It is because New Testament Christianity recognizes the existence and the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches and we believe in the reality that Jesus is the son of God who took on flesh and walked on this earth for approximately 33 years. We can read about that in the book of John. We can read about that in Philippians chapter 2 and in a number of passages throughout God's word. We recognize the fact that he died and that he was buried and that he resurrected from the grave, that he ascended to his Father in heaven, and that he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. As he said of himself in Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 18, as Paul said of him in Romans chapter 1 and verse 4, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 and following. New Testament Christianity is based upon truth and reality because it is based upon and recognizes the truth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he really did come and walk upon this earth, that he really did die for the sins of humanity, and he really did resurrect from the grave on the third day and has ascended into heaven to sit sit at the uh, right hand of the Father uh, on high. Number three, Christianity is the only rational worldview because it recognizes the existence of absolute truth. New Testament Christianity not only recognizes the existence of absolute truth, but also that God and his word is the standard for determining what's right and wrong. Jesus said in John 12 in verse number 48, the words that I speak unto you, the same will judge you in the last day. And in John 17 and verse 17, you remember that Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, sanctify them by your truth because your word is truth. Now, in a little while, we'll we'll look at an illustration having to do with with ethical truth, how to determine what's right and wrong. And one of the common trends between, uh, among rather, other worldviews that compete with New Testament Christianity is many of them, if not all of them, uh, they deny the existence of absolute truth. And so, therefore, they deny an absolute standard of authority for determining right and wrong for all people in all places and at all times. And, therefore, they deny any standard by which all people are going to ultimately be judged. But New Testament Christianity believes and can prove because the Bible, of course, is the inspired word of God. And so New Testament Christianity recognizes that God does exist, that his word is the standard for determining right and wrong, that absolute truth does exist, and that everybody that has ever lived, everyone in all times and in all places, they're going to be held amenable to the same standard and judged by it, and that is God's word. Number four, the reason why New Testament Christianity is the only rational worldview is because New Testament Christianity is grounded in divine revelation, connected to what we just talked about with the idea of a recognition of absolute truth and a standard for determining right and wrong and for living. We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that it contains the answers for every question and every need of man. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, you recall that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction and in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Now, you may stop for a moment and you may think to yourself, well, this is all well and good, but these are just claims. And all worldviews, all, all frameworks of belief and action, every, everybody that has a conviction, everyone makes claims about their conviction. So what makes the claims of New Testament Christianity any different from the claims of everybody else? And the answer is this, number five, New Testament Christianity is rational. It's based upon reality and truth because it's historically verifiable. Because there is not a single claim that God's word makes that cannot be tested and cannot be found to be absolutely true. It is grounded in truth. It is grounded in reality. Its claims are true and its claims can be demonstrated to be true. Other worldviews cannot make those, that same claim about themselves. But New Testament Christianity can. And that's why it's the only worldview that is rational, the only one that is true. That's the first reason why this discussion matters. Let me tell you the second one. The second reason this, this discussion matters is because we have to recognize that godless actions flow from godless ideas. We talked already about how ideas have consequences and made reference to the Nazis in Germany and, how, and the uh, atrocities that they committed. We mentioned Karl Marx and the atrocities of communism throughout the history of the world. We recognize that godless actions flow from godless ideas. And what is it that John said about our world in 1 John 5 and verse 19? He said, we know that we are of God, little children, and that the whole world, what? Lies in wickedness. The New King James Version will say that the whole world lies under the sway or under the influence or under the direction of the wicked one. There are all kinds of ideas and worldviews and ways of processing information and behaving and living that exist in this world. And the, the, the firm truth of the matter is that uh, they are godless. And the fruit that they produce is wicked and godless fruit. Worldviews like secular humanism, like Marxism, like postmodernism, like New Ageism, or sometimes called New Spirituality. These things exist in our world, and we have to recognize that the devil uses these kinds of things. He tries to convince people to believe in them, to see, to believe that they have merit, and to believe that they are real and right and workable ways of thinking. Ephesians 6 and verse 10, the Bible says that we are to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the word wiles, of course, has to do with methods. He's literally talking about tools. And the devil does have tools. And what we have to understand is that the devil utilizes these tools for evil. And as it pertains to these worldviews that exist in our world, he is using his tools in order to try and convince people that those worldviews are right. From cardboard books for babies to the college classroom to television and everything in between. And so therefore we must beware. Paul said in Colossians 2 and verse number 18, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. There were these types, same kinds of philosophies and these same kinds of ideas that existed in the first century world. Uh, like, for example, in the book of Colossians, the apostle Paul is dealing with, with Gnosticism. 
And he's trying to, to give warning to the Christians there to be very careful to listen and to watch for these things and to be careful so that they didn't allow anyone to secretly come in and ruin them. But we also must be on the offensive. It's not just about being aware that they exist, but it's also about being on the offensive. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 11, as he spoke about the weapons of our warfare, beginning in verse number 10, he said, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, he, he, he made this statement. He said, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Look closely at that last statement in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5, and imagine, if you will, an army that has been defeated and its soldiers having been placed in the custody of the victorious army are now in chains, marched off as prisoners of war. That's the image that the Apostle Paul, by inspiration, is painting in 2 Corinthians 10 and verse number 5 when he talks about every thought being brought into the captivity to the obedience of Christ. Now what Paul is telling us is, listen, we fight not against physical things, but rather we fight, he says in verse number 4, not a carnal warfare, but we're fighting against arguments. Look at that, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. We're, we're fighting against arguments. We're fighting against every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He's talking about ideas. He's talking about doctrines. He's talking about the things that people think and the things that people say to make other people think the things that they want them to think so that they'll then do the things that they want them to do. And the Apostle Paul says, we're not sitting back and just allowing this to happen, but rather we're going on the offensive and we are taking those thoughts with the word of God and we are turning those thoughts literally into prisoners of war. That's what he did in Acts chapter 17. The Bible tells us that as Paul walked through the streets of Athens that his, his spirit that it was disturbed. He was greatly disturbed because he looked around the city and he saw that this city and these people were completely and entirely and wholly given over to idolatry and it bothered him. The idea of the text, the grammar of the text indicates that this, it, Paul, uh, it was physically bothered him. It made him angry that all of these things were going on. And so what did he do? Did he go inside his house and hope that it all went away? Of course not. He began to engage them. And that's how he ended up on Mars Hill at the end of Acts chapter 17, dealing with the Stoics and the Epicureans. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 11, the Apostle Paul will say in that passage that we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather we are to what? Whether we are to expose them. So as it pertains to these false ideas and these godless uh, these godless philosophies and ways of living that the devil promotes in this world, what the Bible tells Christians is, listen, you have the sword of the Spirit, Ephesians 6 and verse 17. You have the armor of God uh, on you, Ephesians 6, verse 10 through 17. And so therefore, instead of sitting back and waiting for the enemy to come attack you, you rather take the fight to the enemy. And you let the enemy, you let the world know that there is a God in heaven and that his word is truth and that, listen, 
New Testament Christianity is the only way to live and be acceptable in the sight of God. If you'd like to see an even further illustration about how godless ideas produce godless actions, sometime just turn back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1 and read about the sins of the Gentiles. Paul will tell us, beginning in verse number 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unright, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. And the idea of that is that they suppress, they hold down the truth by the way that they live. Their ungodly actions have the effect of taking the truth of God and trying to push it down so that no one can hear it or see it or know it. And so he goes on and talks about how they refuse to acknowledge God, how they turned their minds and their backs against him. And so because they turned away from God and refused to acknowledge him, they rejected him. Therefore, God gave them up and they committed all kinds of wickedness. This matters because godless ideas produce godless actions. Let me give you a couple of illustrations, two cases in point practically speaking about how this all how this all bears itself out you take the uh, arena of the family and human sexuality and um, recognize let's take two let's take two worldviews and consider briefly what they say about it you have secular humanism which essentially is atheism which views what what they would call the traditional family as problematic And you may know that when they use the word traditional family, what they're really talking about is the family that God has designed, one man and one woman for life. And they view that as being a problem. And so they regularly propose things that are alternate arrangements like homosexuality and open marriages and really and truly whatever a person desires in order to satisfy whatever their lust or passion or desire happens to be. The whole idea or the whole goal is do what makes you happy. Then there's postmodernism, and postmodernism, of course, views all truth as relative. There is no th- such thing as absolute truth as it pertains to the postmodernist thought. It's all relative to the culture and to the time and to the individual and their feelings, their desires and their circumstances. And the postmodern ideology looks at marriage as the greatest of all evils. And this gentleman whose quote you see before you, Richard Rorty, was one of the most uh, well-known philosophers of the last century and uh, had a great influence on a number of those, uh, a number of, uh, of thinkers in our world. And this is just one of his statements. This is what he thinks, or what he thought, rather, about marriage and about the family and about what parents are supposed to do as far as teaching their children. His thought was that parents who teach their children about God are frightening and vicious and dangerous. I want you to stop for a moment and I want you to I want you to think I want you to think about the stories that you've read the movies and the television shows that you've seen the societal trends that you've picked up on and I want you to ask yourself the secular humanism and postmodernism and their views on the family and marriage and the home and human sexuality are those things are they are they prominent in our society are they put before us on a regular basis? Are there those who, whenever a person says, no, this is what God says about what uh, the marriage and family and the home is supposed to be, are there those who would say uh, that you are nothing but a right-wing religious fanatic or a bigot or a homophobe or someone who's against equality? Have you heard those kinds of things? That's the fruit of secular humanist and postmodern thinking. 
What about ethics, though? What about ethics? Do you realize that when it, when it comes to determining what's right or wrong, ethically or morally speaking, that you have, again, secularism, which is atheism, which binds itself to a completely natural explanation for everything. They reject God, and so therefore the rejection of God equals a rejection of absolute truth and objectivity. It is the foundation for relativism and utilitarianism. There then is Marxism, and pertaining to ethics, you remember that Marxists believe uh, something about society, and that is that society is on the upward trend of the elimination of all social and economic classes. And so anything that would aid that movement, the movement to rid society of social and economic classes, therefore is ethically right, even if that means violent and radical revolutionary extremism. To them, that is ethically true. The postmodernist questions the need for God and rejects all absolutes. For them, ethics are relative to the culture. New Ageism sees ethical truth as something that is subjective to the individual, and so it has no use for God or object objectivity. It's all about individualism, and you've probably heard the buzzword. The word is karma. That's New Ageism. Now, the common trend with all of these things is that none of them actually has a way of determining what's absolutely right or wrong because each and every one of them, when you boil it down in its most basic form, is completely subjective. And the thing with a subjective ethic or moral code is that at some point there's going to be a disagreement between two parties. It might be a disagreement between two individuals. It might be a disagreement between two groups, two nations, two states, two empires. There's going to be a disagreement somewhere, and someone has to be able to determine which one of those two is right. But if you reject God, and you reject absolute truth, and you reject God's word as the standard for morality, and that standard by which all people are going to be judged, you don't have any way of determining who's right other than allowing them to fight it out and then determine that the person left standing is the one, uh, the one who wins, uh, takes the crown. Now, if you stop again for a moment and start to think about the things that we see that go on, uh, the, the things that go on in our world, I think that you'll see that these, these things are very much alive and these things are indeed very well and active. And so why, why would we talk about something like this? Well, this, this is why. Because Christianity is the only worldview that is true and that is rational and that is based upon reality. And there are a whole lot of other worldviews that are false. And the devil uses those things. And the Bible teaches us that as New Testament Christians, our, desire, our goal, our job is to arm ourselves with the armor of God and not sit back and wait, but rather to engage the enemy. The issues of our day we have to realize are being addressed by people who hold one of all of these different worldviews. Whether it's racism or human sexuality or justice or equality or the role of government or whatever it may be. Remember that everybody has a, role, a worldview. Everyone does. The Bible teaches that God made the family to consist of a man and his wife. Genesis chapter 2, Matthew 19 and verse 9. But there are people in our world who see that as being ridiculous. The Bible teaches that all men are made in the image of God and that our responsibility is to love one another. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. But there are people in our world who see that as being false. The Bible teaches that it is not sinful for a person to own property, but that it is, sin, but that it is sinful for a person to not have a, uh, for a person uh, not to 
have a job and earn a living if he's physically able. Acts chapters 4 and 5 and 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 9 to 12. But there are people in our world whose worldview and whose ideology looks at that and laughs. The Bible teaches that the government has the responsibility of protecting the innocent and punishing the guilty and that we have the responsibility of submitting to the government. Romans chapter 13 verses 1 and following. And yet there are people in our world who think that that is completely wrong. So we have to be careful and we cannot allow ourselves to be deceived or intimidated into thinking that what God says is not true or irrelevant or outdated. And we must be sure to teach our children and our grandchildren and our friends and our neighbors and everyone that we can about New Testament Christianity. We've got to live out the... um, Uh, live out the command of 2 Corinthians 10 and verse number 5 that we are bringing every thought, excuse me, every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. We must view the issues of life through the glasses, through the lens, through the worldview, the framework, if you will, of New Testament Christianity because that is the only way that we'll be able to view them in a rational and realistic light. Ideas have consequences. Ideas have had consequences since God created the world, and ideas will continue to have consequences until the Lord returns and this world is no more. Our ideas have consequences because our ideas produce our belief system, and our belief system is what produces our actions, and there's not a single human being in this entire world that has no ideas and no belief system and and carries out no action, not one. We all do it. From the person that we come into contact with in the grocery store to the President of the United States and the Queen of England and everybody else in between, everyone has a worldview. And everyone makes decisions based on that worldview. So tonight, as we conclude our time together this evening, and I know we've gone long, I appreciate your, I appreciate your, your attention and your patience. As we conclude this study, I will simply just, I will simply just leave you with this, with this encouragement. And that is this, that when we, when, we hold, when we hold the Bible in our hands, we know that what we're holding in our hands is absolutely true. And we know that if we live by what this says, if we apply what it says, and if we believe in, with every fiber of our being and have faith in the God who has given this word, given this word, We know that we're going to be pleasing and acceptable in his sight. And we know that although the devil and his entire host, all of his armies may line up against us, we know that the the battle has already been won and the victory has already been sealed because we're God's people. But it's so important for us, it's so important for us to be alive and to be active, engaged in this battle of ideas, in this battle of for the soul. I'm going to offer the invitation now, and it may be that there's someone here this evening that has a need to respond. Maybe you need to become a Christian, child of God. We'd love to help you to do that. Maybe you are a Christian this evening, but as you think about your life and how it, how it compares with the Word of God, maybe it's, it's, uh, there's something lacking. Maybe you need to make something right. We'd love to help you. Won't you come forward and let your need be known while we stand and sing together?